Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. Hello, I'm Julie Smith, and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. What we're going to be talking about is, are we entering a new era of austerity for the arts? And the panel will be Sue Hoyle, director of the CLAW Leadership Programme, Jill Bloomfield of Arts and Business, our third speaker will be Professor Shira West of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and the final speaker on the panel will be Peter Florence, director of the Hay Festival. They'll discuss whether the recession is likely to decimate the arts, and is it now time to play it safe. So let's now go inside the Mill Lane Lecture Room at the heart of Cambridge University and hear our first speaker, Sue Hoyle, director of the CLAW Leadership Programme. Thank you very much. I'm going to talk for, I hope, not too long, but please nudge me if I go on a bit, um, about the performing arts museums and galleries in this country, how they're funded, and say a little bit about funding in two other countries, the US and uh, France, um, and then perhaps raise some questions about uh, what the recession means for arts organisations. Um, we have a tendency to run ourselves down in this country. I think we've got the most extraordinary uh, creative talent there. The arts organisations that are supported are diverse, challenging, and many of them very innovative. And um, I think, as everybody knows, there's been a huge investment in the arts over the last decade, which has enabled arts organisations to be much more fully engaged with their public, to encourage participation, to generate more income for themselves, in other words, to expand, create jobs, and um, uh, revive communities. And compared to other countries in terms of local, regional, and national budgets, the arts in the UK, I think, are relatively cheap, and I think they offer tremendous value for money. And about, in fact, it was nine years, nearly ten years ago now, I and a colleague uh, did a, a report comparing the funding in the UK and France, public funding for the arts. It was quite challenging to do. Um, the information is collated completely differently in both countries. Even the definition of culture is quite different. Um, but overall, what we discovered, and you will be not surprised, uh, was that the amount of public funding going into the arts in France was pretty much double of what it was in the UK. Uh, we did another stock take three years ago, and at that stage, things had really changed. We'd had the lottery funding here. We had substantial increases in direct government funding from the arts. And indeed, between 1999 and 2006, um, in t for England alone, public funding of the arts had increased by some 70%, compared to, in France, just 20.5%. So it's no surprise to discover in 2006 uh, that French cultural organisations were beginning to realise that they needed to have a more mixed economy than relying solely on public funding, which many of them seem to be doing. Yesterday, um, there was a, a, an a arts conference in London called Culture is Right. Um, and at this conference, Alan Davy, the current chief executive of the Arts Council, spoke. And he argued that for every pound the Arts Council of England puts into the arts, two pounds is brought in elsewhere, from elsewhere, from I assume he means the box office, fundraising and so on. And it was his view, although we might challenge this argument a bit, that if you took away that one pound of Arts Council funding, it would mean that you'd be losing, therefore, three pounds. 
so the arts are important, we recognise they're important, um, but it's always already happening that the arts funding is decreasing in the UK. It's happening already at a local level. I heard Polly Toynbee say last week that the axe has been devolved, um, that cuts are happening at a local level, and it's going to happen pretty soon at a national level. Um, all of us know it, but some people are just ignoring it. And I think it's something that arts organisations need to wake up pretty smartly and do something about it. We mustn't ignore the iceberg we've glimpsed. Um, and I'm minded of the words of uh, Diane Ragsdale, um, Programme Officer for the uh, Andrew Mellon Foundation in the US, who said that she was at a conference of orchestral leaders recently, and one of them said, I feel I'm the captain of the Titanic and there's an iceberg ahead. But rather than being on top, steering the ship, I'm in the bowels, shoveling coal in the furnace. I'm afraid if I stop shoveling coal, we'll run out of steam. But I know that if I don't start steering the ship soon, we'll run into an iceberg. And I suppose that is my argument, that we really need people to steer the ship. Um, and you'll be no, no surprise to any of you to know that I think we need really good leaders of the arts in the UK. People who've got a really clear sense of purpose who can build relationships, think laterally and creatively, can innovate, can solve problems, and can make choices, because choices they must make. People who don't avoid taking the necessary steps. Nesta um, published a, a little booklet which caught my eye on the way down, How to Survive an Economic Downturn, it was called, so that seemed very relevant. Um, and in it, um, a, an essay called Collaboration and Creativity Will Get You Through quoted uh, the need for innovation. New ideas and approaches will drive your business forward during the recession, it said. So sidelining innovation is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I'd agree with that. Arts organisations need to continue to take risks. Um, they have challenges sometimes. Artists want to take risks. All too often, their boards don't. And there's a real nervousness about the need to really face up to the fact that some of these organisations are a bit out of touch with what's happening out there. They need to remodel themselves, they need to look at new ways of working, and they need to look fleet of foot. I'm certainly not speaking of everyone. There are some great organisations who are already making changes, who are already prioritising what they do and how it relates to the environment in which they're working. <coughs> And I want to finish up just briefly by talking about a research trip I went on to, to New York and Washington in February. I knew there that the economic crisis was really beginning to bite. The financial repercussions of it were reaching arts organisations very quickly, more quickly than here, because of the greater reliance on private sector support. And there was talk in February of as many as 10,000 arts organisations facing collapse because they were really at the whim of market forces and not, as is the case here, a combination of market forces, public and private funding and your own initiative. The acuteness of the problem was very clear and already people were being laid off, uh, executives were taking big cuts in pay, programmes were being snipped. I spoke to one person in New York who was British who has worked for four or five years in New York, but prior to that was in the UK. And he said to me that he thought those people who had developed their careers in the UK, where we've always had to cope with the challenge of a mixed economy, where although things have not been at all bad in the last few years, they're still pretty tight and they're going to get tighter. He felt people who'd worked in this country were better placed than his peers in the States to cope with the recession 
to cope with the need for this kind of change. Um, people in the US have been used to having access to very large sums of private money, and that private money is in serious decline. Boards in the US, I was told, are much more action-focused. Money's always the first agenda item on any meeting, whereas here, governing bodies tend to start with the programme, to start with the art. So it remains to be seen in this country as the recession bites more severely if the arts will stay at the top of the agenda. And I think if they don't, the arts will die. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas, where discussing whether the arts are now entering a new era of austerity. The next to speak is Peter Florence, director of the Hay Festival. It works just like anything else. It's an extreme form of Darwinism. The good people will get stronger, the bad people will fall apart. Um, what is it that the creative or the art sector does that's of value to society? Well, it makes life richer uh, in all sorts of very obvious ways, but in a sort of secular society, also important spiritual ways. And all the evidence suggests, and you've heard some of it spun out here already, that over the last 12 months, most people who are running big cultural organisations have seen huge increases in turnover. Partly that's because we're all so fucking sick of being told that everything's doom and gloom and we want to have some fun. Part of it's that we no longer want to define ourselves in terms of what we can buy in the high street, but maybe look for other sources of value. You know, it's like that Orson Welles quote from The Third Man, which I can't remember, but you remember the gist of in Italy under the Borgias they had terror, bloodshed, rape, and they created Leonardo, Michelangelo, and the Renaissance in Switzerland. They had democracy, 500 years of brotherly love, and it produced a cooking clock. Well, yeah, the arts did not end in the 30s, or the 40s, or the 50s. Austerity is not bad for creative people. It's pretty bad for ballet companies and opera companies, but even they survive if the work they do is valued by enough people. And you're right, that the Americans are having a tough time, but do you know what? I would much rather have a board of people who wanted to raise money for me than I would like to have a board of people telling me what they think my arts programme should be. <laughs> and I'm willing to bet that every single person who goes through Sue's leadership programme will say exactly the same thing, or they should go and work in the shopping channels. Now, the extraordinary advantages we have in this country, which, you know, even doing the maths on Sue's Sue's French and English comparison, they're still almost 30% ahead of us in terms of public investment. The creative industries, not including the value of cultural tourism in this country, create 7% of GDP. There's never been a better time to be an arts graduate if you want to get employed. The gaming industry alone I mean by that people who are making computer games, and you can argue the cultural or artistic value of that, employs something extraordinary like 35% of all art graduates. Now, if we're looking at the cultural traditions that we have in this country, we have an amazingly rich consumer base. More people here go to the theatre, go to festivals, go to the symphony, than they do in almost any other European country. Despite what the Italians would tell you, and let's not take lessons from people who re-elected Berlusconi twice, 
opera attendance in this country exceeds that in Italy. We have an amazingly strong art sector, some incredibly good devoted people working in it. But actually, in terms of austerity, what they will do, they'll find new ways of being inventive, they'll find new partnerships. And if they don't, then they should go to the wall, because they're not good enough at what they do. Everybody here is living in an amazingly rich and privileged way in, in the arts in Britain, because we have a fantastic audience. And no matter what the economic lessons of the last 12 or so years of government have been, uh, the education in terms of arts and culture has been extraordinarily rich. And at the moment that we lose the money for peripatetic music teachers, at the moment we lose the money for taking children to see museums, to go to the theatre, to have that wonderful participation in basic level arts that they've already lost in sport. And part of the reason that everybody in the arts is so pissed off with the Olympics is that successive governments have run down investment in sport to such a degraded level in basic school facilities that if they did the same in arts, and it's only because the largely liberal establishment in the education sector here has protected the arts in a way they couldn't protect sport. All those playing fields sold off. The reduction in numbers of PE teachers has devastated Britain's health and its physical education. We haven't <coughs> suffered the same trauma in terms of culture because of the teachers. And that's an extraordinary gift. It's much stronger, the, the uh, arts-supported tradition in the teaching community here than it is in any other country. Um, the reason is not only the fact that the lottery money has all been sucked into the building work around the east of London, and God knows it needed it, but it's the fact that there is this huge pretense that we are a major sporting nation. Now, take aside the cycling team, and it's, I know I'm saying this in Cambridge, it's not that big a deal being really good at cycling. <laughs> we are not world class in anything other than killing people and culture. You, know, you put the SAS and the British cultural establishments together, you have true world-class British achievement. We're really not very good at sport. And there's an amazing sense in which we undervalue politically the value of the arts. There's never been a proper minister at the DCMS who had serious cabinet weight. There was a moment when Peter Mandelson might have been given it. There was a moment when David Mellor blew it. But actually, these people don't have big voices in cabinet. And whatever happens with the Tory uh, government, if indeed there is a Tory government, their DCMS policies are going to be solely focused towards realigning the BBC to Murdoch and to dealing with avoiding the dome factor of the Olympics. They aren't going to have time, and I don't think they're going to have the political will to muck around with arts funding because there's not a big enough saving to be made if you cut all of it, and actually there are too many very vocal people who protest against it. It would be bad marketing. What we, I think, are going to look forward to is a pretty much a stable arts council or arts funding plateau, whether it remains in the ream of the arts council is another matter. But the artists, who are the people who are actually creating the content and the work that's going to change people's lives, are not dependent upon funding. A writer is not not going to write poetry because they haven't got a grant. A composer is not not going to write the music. It might take them longer and they might need to find another kind of band to play the music, but they're still going to do it. 
People are still going to think about what matters in human terms, and that's where the artists will find their real value. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we're now going to turn to Jill Bloomfield of Arts and Business. And Jill has had um, a career that started off in insurance, but then moved to arts management, including rebranding of Theatre Is, the Young People's Theatre Organisation. And she is the Regional Director of the East of England for Arts and Business. Over to you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Austerity. I thought that was a quite an, an emotive word. Um, it talks about, just to me, a lack of colour and a rather dreary and depressing uh, scene. Uh, something that I hope, I'm sure you all hope, isn't something that the arts will do. But again, really picking up on what Sue has said, we are actually at a very good time currently. The current arts funding mix is, is very healthy. My organisation focuses on collecting research into the private uh, income coming into the arts. Now that's not only business, that's also individuals and that's also trusts and foundations. In 0708, our survey reported that £686 million was going into the UK Arts Centre from all sources of private in income. That's nothing, everything apart from Arts Council local government. Since that, obviously, at that time we reported, although the, that um, total private investment was high, the business income at that point was already starting to fall. So we're already starting to see the beginning of the recession hitting. Business uh, declined and it fell 7%. It stood in 0708 at £163 million and accounted only for 24% of the overall contribution from the private sector. When we realised how significant the recession was going to be and how quickly it would impact on arts organisations, we decided to undertake a quarterly market survey. And what we've done over the last, uh, this, we've had the, the third report has just been issued, and we've been temperature check testing not only arts organisations but businesses' confidence in the arts. And I'd just like to share some of those figures with you. 54.9% of the arts organisations we surveyed had no difference in public funding. 45% were already reporting decreased, which is something that Sue's already alluded to. Business income, only 30% of the arts organisations had the same or more funding, and 70% had already seen a quite a significant decrease. Individual giving was around 50-50. You know, some people were the same, half the same, half noticed a decrease. Trusts and foundations, Again, not a significant decrease, although we know that trusts and foundations have been very much hit by the recession, with obviously a, a drop in their income. There was also some good news. Arts organisations were reporting a big increase in people attending free festivals. Cultural tourism is up in, because of the weak pound. The Edinburgh Fringe reported 20% more audience than in 2007, and London theatres reported their best year ever. What were arts organisations doing to combat this problem? Working harder, I think, was the answer. They're raising friends at the moment. They know that actually it's tough out there for business. This is not the time to be making big requests. But it's time to be actually cultivating the value of what their offer is for the future. They're looking at systems. They're looking at collaboration. They're looking at being a bit smarter. They're turning to what's happening in America. They're looking at can they start looking at getting online do donations? 
they are worried because they know that actually the recession hasn't yet impacted on the private sector and the worst, in a way, is yet to come. They're also very worried about the impact of the Olympics. Most arts organisations see the Olympics as a threat and not an opportunity. What are we doing about it? Well, we're saying that actually the private sector will recover first from the recession. We're also very aware that actually there is still a lot of individual wealth out there that arts organisations are not very good at tapping and actually the arts needs to do that a lot better. We think the arts are starting to look at collaboration and I think that's something that in times ahead with reduced public funding that should be encouraged. And we're also seeing that there may well be, um, maybe under a new government, a greater emphasis on the local, on local funding, on local philanthropy, growing a sense of community, again, not dissimilar to the American model. We think there will be need for stimulation for private investment. We think that some kind of challenge fund may well be a good idea. We think that culture has a lot to learn from business and that there should be encouraging closer links. Thank you very much indeed. We're now turning to Professor Cheryl West, who is Director of Research at the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Thank you very much. Um, in the sort of arts and humanities research community, and I'm talking about arts and humanities, the arts broadly speaking, um, there has been a lot of doom and gloom recently, and understandably so. Just like what has just been said about arts funding going up and then going down, we've seen the same thing in research funding. We've seen a lot of, of money added to the research budget across the board for a number of years. And now we're beginning to get a sense that although it hasn't started to decline yet, it's, it's, it might in the future. Um, so if the Olympics are pulling money away from the arts, um, what seems to be pulling money away from arts and humanities research is possibly the ring fencing of money for, for STEM subjects, for science, technology, engineering and maths. And I should say that that's also um, something that affects social science research as well. Um, and I think um, the, the sort of recent idea that, that STEM money needs to be ring fenced um, and arts and humanities uh, and social science funding doesn't, has caused a lot of anxiety in the academic community, uh, not surprisingly. And what's caused even more anxiety is uh, the restructuring of government departments, putting universities and research funding under the Department of Business Innovation and Skills. And with that has come an intensification of an agenda about impact. What is the impact of research? How do you demonstrate that impact? And, and the impact needs to be demonstrated more than it hitherto has been in the past. So I think just when, when impact is used, and it's a word that makes a lot of uh, academics see red, uh, what it actually means is the contribution of research to society and the economy, not just the contribution of research to the academy. Um, and I think that this is something that's, that, that is, um, is, is causing a lot of consternation among academic circles. And I think the reasons it's causing consternation are perfectly understandable. Um, nobody likes to be assessed at the best of times. And because the impact agenda feels like it has been imposed, rather than coming from the bottom up, there's a recoil from the implied restrictions on academic freedom. And because it comes with a hint that value has to be demonstrated, 
some people feel that the value may not be there or it may not be perceived to be there by the taxpayer. We have to demonstrate the value of funding research to the taxpayer. And I think um, impact itself has what some see as a slightly tainted history in cultural and uh, policy research and social policy research. And the language surrounding it also causes a lot of anxiety as well. Um, from my point of view, coming from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and having spent a lot of time in the last year or so, I've been there thinking about impact and working on impact in research. I think one of the problems for me in the current debates about it is that they're very polarised as to whether or not impact is a good thing or a bad thing, uh, with a lot of people saying it's bad and a lot of people saying it's good. And I want to suggest that what we're, what we're not doing by polarising this debate is recognising the opportunities that this idea about impact could provide, I think especially for arts and humanities research, particularly in a period of austerity, if that's what we're indeed entering. I think what, one thing that I've discovered talking to researchers about their research and looking at their research in arts and humanities, that there is a lot of impact in the research already. Um, I think a lot of academics perhaps don't realise it or recognise it. A lot of them are very modest about it or embarrassed about it. And what we're trying to do is to bring it out. And I think one of the issues here is that the way the academic world has evolved over the last 20 or so years, a lot of academics are not rewarded for impact. They're rewarded for doing things that are not about getting outside the academy. They're about staying inside the academy. So I think one of the things I wanted to say is what impact actually looks like in arts and humanities research. And I want to give a few facts and figures about this. And I think this demystifies the term a little bit and also allows us as arts and humanities researchers to take ownership of this term. In terms of monetary impact, we have actually um, done some research in the Arts and Humanities Research Council and discovered that at a modest estimate, Overseas research students in arts and humanities bring in at least two billion pounds to the economy in any single year. Um, PricewaterhouseCoopers has determined, uh, we had a, a, a sort of scaling up uh, note earlier on, they've determined that for every one pound that the Arts and Humanities Research Council invests in research, there is an almost immediate 10 pound return in the investment. And over a 15 year period, that could go up to 15 pounds to 20 pounds. Treasury definition also talks about improvement to public services. And our researchers work very widely in the UK with museums, with galleries, with archives, with libraries, with public sector organizations, and with professional practitioners such as musicians, dancers, lawyers, and teachers. And there is a whole raft of ways that that has impact. Influencing public policy is another point that Treasury mentions, and again, we have researchers who are constantly being invited by government departments to come and talk about their research subjects like law, philosophy, religious studies, and history, for example. Uh, one of the Treasury's Green Book's terms is also human capital, and in terms of arts and humanities research, we have half a million undergraduate students graduating each year in arts and humanities, and they're going into the workplace in a whole variety of different jobs. And the quality of life one, which is the most nebulous, I think is also the most important, because what arts and humanities research contributes to society and the economy is it contributes to the intellectual life of the UK. It contributes to divergent thinking, it contributes to tolerance, 
And a lot of the ways that this happens with researchers is through public engagement activities, through researchers working with the media, with schools, with community history, arts and archaeology, with public lectures, debates and performances. And our researchers do all of these things. Now, if I were an economist, I would take that quality of life list I just gave you and say, and so we attract inward investment to the UK through tourism and people coming and moving here with their businesses. Um, but I don't think we necessarily have to convert value to value for money. I mean, we have to do it in the Arts and Humanities Research Council, but the researchers don't necessarily need to themselves. I think these things are worthy things for researchers to do in a 21st century academic environment. And that's why I think researchers should do it, not because they necessarily think of themselves as contributing to uh, inward investment and tourism. So I just want to argue in a period of austerity Rather than spending our energy fighting about whether we support the idea of impact or not, we need to own the idea of impact. We need to get behind it to the things that lie behind it, which we do value and which can help us foster a flourishing rather than an austere future. Thank you very much indeed. I hope we might all join with me in thanking our four speakers very much indeed. Thank you.